right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello, everyone. Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And we have a brand new guest from the show Black Republican and Black Democrat, AK. What's up, everybody? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, another person that I found on TikTok, Josh. So <laughs> again, <laughs> good things do come from TikTok. So if you haven't heard, Elon Musk has officially purchased Twitter and uh, that, that deal is going to be going through. So today we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, what President Biden has promised to put into place, which is uh, the Ministry of Truth. He calls it the Disinformation Task Force, uh, but I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to foreshadow my thoughts there. <laughs> so let's let's open it up. Uh, what do you all think about Elon Musk buying Twitter? I mean, it's really hard to make Twitter worse, but they sure found a way. But I mean, it's Twitter. So what's it like? What, what like legitimately what's the worst that can happen? Twitter gets worse. <laughs> Twitter is the only social media social media I don't regularly use. So, like, I think it's uh, really bad, and hopefully, I like the securities regulators will actually even stop this from happening. Is there a chance that, that will happen? Is are, yeah, they're they not with that. Yeah, because it's a publicly traded company; it's still open to SEC review before some like forty-five billion dollar deal can go through. Uh, I mean, there's not like great grounds for them to block it, but it'd be nice if they could find some. You're saying that you're hoping that they block him from purchasing it, or they they're they're y yeah. Elon Musk owning Twitter's is is not great. Okay. AK, what are what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter's been an absolute dumpster fire. I think that their moderation, the algorithms are clearly censoring biasly. And I, I like to I guess look at the bigger picture. If you believe that there is a, a public domain um, argument in regards to you have a space that is privately owned, but it's a space that a lot of people use. Is this now considered part of the public commons? I think that Elon coming in and saying, we want to actually have more free speech and not less free speech. And let's figure out a way that we can actually make this big platform able to be used by more people more broadly. I'm all for that. I think Twitter has become just like, it's, it's become a cesspool because people take it as a joke that are, we'll call it right of center bias. And they mostly just use it to, have like trolley types of tweets. But I remember when Twitter used to not be like that. You're always gonna have some trollish aspect of things, but now it's so much that a lot of people don't take Twitter seriously if you're right of center. People left of center still take Twitter seriously, but right of center people just, they're just highly trollish because they're like, whatever, man, I'm, I'm probably gonna get banned or censored or, or something happened. So I think it's a good thing that Elon, because I agree with you, Josh, that What's the worst that can happen? Because it's already pretty trash. So I think the only way you can go is up or it dies even more, I guess. And at that point, it is what it is. At least the shareholders get a fair valuation for their money. Can we go around and just say how much we use Twitter? Because I use Twitter for my job. I, I work for a nonprofit, but in comps. So I, I use Twitter a lot to monitor like, what people are saying. Uh, because obviously we care. <laughs> center, left of center people just, you know. Maybe, and you said it, AK, I think we, sometimes we take it too seriously. But I use Twitter for my job and to get mad online. But I don't really tweet anything, so I'm not really active. I'm just like a, I just... You're like a lurker. Oh, I, yeah, yeah I'm, 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 I'm literally a lurker. We, we would think you're a bot, potentially, with how little you post. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> I have tweeted five times in five years, I think. Okay. But I have, and I haven't tweeted since like... 
2019. Okay. And I would like to keep it that way, even though it probably hurts me professionally. <laughs> but uh, so, I, so I use it. I look at it a lot, maybe too much. But how about you guys? So for me, um, I have my personal account, then I have the one for the show. I use the show just to kind of put every every time we get a new episode up. So like uh, that one's being used a lot. Personal account, I think the first time in probably a year, um, I tweeted yesterday because there was a petition going around to stop the <laughs> Tennessee Tech Communication Department from being moved to a decrepit off-campus site. That was the first time I used it. I, I don't personally tweet a lot, and I don't I, – I actually really don't use it to scroll through news either. So I, I use it even less than Marcelo does. I have a Twitter account that has my normal like social handle on it. It has a professional picture, has a brief like bio. I forget, I forget what I have it says in the bio. And then I have it follow like five of the university accounts that I currently work and attend. And that's all it does. It's just there so people can look my name up online on Twitter and see that I'm associated with the university and contact me that way if like for whatever reason. Because I, I think Facebook in its own way like doesn't have this necessary same problem, although it can. But my my personal use of social media has been like, oh, whenever there starts to be more than like 20 or 30 people interacting in a given area, I'm going to stop and stopping in that social media space because it's just going to like get like increasingly worse in there. So I use like Facebook even now, like I don't use it like too much for its news feed versus just its group functions for like uh, friend groups of mine. But Twitter always seemed like a hellscape that was just never worth getting involved in. <laughs> now, I I probably tweet uh, twice twice a day. I retweet probably two or three times a day. I like probably 15, 15 to 20 tweets a day. And that's been within the last like six months. I've been pretty consistent on it. But I actually do use it to uh, try and follow news. Um, I follow like, I don't know, probably like 45 different journalists um, from all across the political spectrum. Because sometimes it's nice to try and interact with different people and like read what other people's takes are. But like I said, you know, I'm, I'm mostly using it to see what journalists are saying to be able to give myself I guess some material to, to talk about or to write about. And that's primarily what I use. I don't use it really as an effective communication tool to actually have conversations with one-on-one. -on -one. I've tried, like I had this one thread going back and forth with this dude. I think we had like 45 tweets back and forth and we were arguing about some, some stuff. And at, at one point I was like, you know, I've done this on Facebook with comments. Like if you go to my personal Facebook page, man, there's this, there's this one post that I posted that now has like 500 comments and I would say 400 of them are between myself and this guy. Like he'll, he'll, he'll comment at like two in the morning and then I'll wake up in the morning and, and I'll see his comment. Then I'll comment back and it's been going on for like, for like four months. He's this white nationalist dude and he's involved in one of these, uh, he's at least on the group. I've never met him in person and he keeps on like trying to like argue with me that, that collectivism around ethnicity is a good thing. And I'm like, you're in a Republican group. I want to understand. And it's, it's interesting. But back to your point about how often you use Twitter, it's really just to kind of like look at news information and to, you know, see people's funny takes. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to go back to what Josh was saying earlier. He said, he, you know, sounds like not excited uh, from us to take over Twitter. And I know a lot of people have had reasons. 
some are worried he's going to open up the standards too much, and now you're going to allow for bullying, harassment, hate speech. Are, are you more concerned about him as like an owner slash leader, or are you more concerned about what the platform might now allow? I really want to know, you know, we're, we're going to go down the path of like, you know, don't believe his words, believe his actions. Because if, if, the, if the deal goes through, like, and, and maybe... Um, Ryan and, and AK, maybe you can answer this. Is like I want to know what we have lost because, like, the one thing that I think we have lost uh, out of you know out of Twitter in the last two years has been like I don't know Donald Trump's account, I guess. Like, and, and, and like at least at least in my space of like people who I follow, who I was following, obviously the president was one of them, um, and he's gone, right? And he said he's not coming back, even if he gets his account back. What what have we lost that like Elon could potentially bring back? Because when you say more free speech, you know, that can mean many things. I don't even understand what, you know, I want to begin to understand what that means. So for me, when I talk, when I, when I hear free speech, uh, more free speech, right now, Twitter has a misgendering policy, right? And I, I understand the intent behind it. But, uh, you know, one of the people that, that I have followed for a while on Twitter is Zuby. And he said just a response to someone. He said, okay, dude, someone that was transgender. And he got banned for it. Uh, now, he appealed the decision. They ended up restoring his account. But that in and of itself, right, is like if you – let's say that you think that that speech that you just disagree with, someone misgender someone or whatever. Right now, the platform says you can't do that. Otherwise, you will be blocked or banned until you delete that information. So my thing is if you don't want to interact with someone like that, free speech means that someone's free to say what they want. And I know that there's going to be a question about at what point can you say what you want. And I'm, I'm more of like a free speech absolutist where I'm like, listen, hate speech is a thing. It exists. Are there standards that are decency that I can at least acknowledge and say, okay, well, if you're going to have certain standards, but at the core of it, you can block people that you don't want. If you don't like people's speech, block it, whatever, right? Like that function has always existed. The issue that I have is that we have an idea that if you have a platform, if you allow people to say things that you disagree with, that you are platforming bad speech. And I think that that's a scary road to go down that we already have been down. We've been down this road with Facebook, with Twitter. That's, the, that's where we're at now is that if you have a platform to spread the terrible things, the beliefs that, that someone thinks that you have bad beliefs or bad speech, that, that should not allow to, can't be allowed to exist. But it exists. We cannot stop it from existing. The things, in my opinion, that you can do to combat speech you don't like is to have speech that you disagree. So, like, if you think this person's a racist jackass, go and explain that you think that person's a racist jackass, right? Go and, and say, like, point this out. And I think that's the remedy. So to your question about, you know, what type of speech, that's just one, I, one thing is that the misgendering policy, again, that's one of these aspects that is very biased because people on the right, ironically, believe that if you call someone not by the biological sex, that that's misgendering to them. But the policy that Twitter has is clearly left biased because the misgendering is saying it's how we identify misgendering on the left. If someone identifies this way, this is how you need to gender them. And if they don't, then that's misgendering. So that's, that's where I talk about like the free speech aspect of the bias is that if you don't like that, block someone or come back and explain how terrible that person's take is and if people support what you say, then they're going to support what you say. If they think that it's garbage, they can block you. And that's that's what I think about the free speech aspect of, of Twitter. 
I think Elon making it more free speech because he's already talked about that policy. We'll see what he does. Because that's the other thing no one wants to talk about. People on the right are like cheering like, oh, yeah, it's free speech. But we don't know. I mean, Elon Musk is a weird dude. He's not like this staunch Republican or hardcore conservative. Like, I don't even know what Elon Musk is because he supports universal basic income in some way, shape or form. He supports, you know, universal health care in some way, shape or form. So it's not like he's like this right winger or anything, but who knows? He loves government subsidies, I've heard. He's definitely enjoyed them very much in his business career. Thank you. That, that, that gives me some perspective. I think that when it comes to free speech, uh, and we've had this conversation on the show before, is that Twitter can either be, you know, the, the hands-free, like, you know, anything goes, and then just don't take any responsibility for it. But as soon as you start taking some responsibility for it, you have, I think, responsibility to the people that you are, like your users, to create that sort of safe space. I don't think... Twitter has been good enough at trying to walk the line between both. I don't know if there's like a line that really very clearly exists because either you let everything go or you or you actually go ahead and say like, hey, you know, we care and we're going to do our best or what we think is our best to try to, you know, in some ways protect our users from speech that we don't like and not really agree with. So you mentioned safe space. Tell me a little yeah. bit about what, what, what does that need to look like on Twitter? Because, because to me... That, that should not be regulated to the point where, because very often when I hear someone say Twitter needs to be a safe space, it means I should never have to be confronted with anything that I disagree with or that offends me. To you guys, what, what does that safe space need to look like then? I know that safe space has a very negative connotation for, for, for some people. And, then, and I think for most people, safe space has been tainted with, with that negative connotation. Uh, but what I will say first in terms of like, what do I want out of Twitter is that it, it feels to me that your criticism of Twitter, it comes from a place of like, you know, this private company is not doing the things that I want this private company to do. So I'm gonna ask this guy with a lot more money to just buy the company and hopefully do the things that I want them to do. Which to me is, you know, maybe your ideal of what the free market would look like. But to me, it's, it, it's also like, you know, we started the conversation by talking about how Twitter is, uh, you know, it's almost the open, space like it's it's public right it's it's almost public because so many people use it and yet it's a private company that you know it, in i think in most people's worlds which is like okay well we, we wouldn't want the government to jump in right because that's not what we want we wouldn't want the government to jump in and make these regulations to make it you know open and to you know to 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 modify these policies and so that at least you know i i guess i'm also not answering your question the way you wanted it to but I'm, I'm throwing it back to you. And I'm saying like, yeah, you know, my idea of a safe space is very different than other people's idea of safe space. And, and you know, millions of people use Twitter. So would, um, would your definition then more fall with like, you don't want those things that you disagree with to be there? I would, you know, hot take, I, you know, AK, they talk about people being racist. I would rather not have racists on the platform. You know, like, and, and you know, I've already, this is nothing new. I've said this before in the show is that, when it, when it comes to the side of, like, would I allow hate speech to be there or not, I think that deplatforming people is actually very effective. And we've seen it. Oh, it's very effective. You, you cannot say things if you don't have a platform. And I, I exactly. know for myself, that's the problem because Twitter has absolutely been doing that. They, I mean, you removed the sitting president of the United States. Could you argue that he said things that hurt people's feelings or said things that were not good? Absolutely. But are they consistently well, applying those it, terms and conditions? No. Than, than hurting people's feelings. <laughs> I, would, I would take it a little farther than that. Um, okay, so well, it's a question of it's a question of I think do do words actually mean violence? And this is a conversation that's not original to me. 
But the argument is that for someone like me, I, I, I don't know, Marcelo, uh, I grew up in a rural North Dakota town and as one of like 19 black people in the town of 7,500, I've, I've seen what it's like to be confronted with people that have racist ideas, like what I d- identify as like a, a hatred for me just because of the color of my skin. But I've also interacted with a lot of people that are just really, um, you know, discriminatory or, you know, they're just really biased because they don't understand or they don't know. My point is, I have never thought that words are violence ever, 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 ever. And, you know, someone calls me a mean name, calls me the worst name that you can call a black person or whatever, which I actually disagree with, but that's a whole other issue. I don't see that words are violence. I see that actions are violence. Now, if my words, not, not, not feathered, but if I say, listen, go to Joe Schmo's house and burn it down, that's actually a call for, for violence, right? Like, that's where you're saying, I want not just to say mean things. Like, I could say, Joe's a terrible person. You know, he's a bum. You know, I, I think that God made a mistake when he created this person. But if you don't call for someone to do an action, that to me is the line. So you can say all the mean, nasty things you want, and I don't view that as violence. So I'm curious if for you, Marcelo, do you believe that if someone says mean, nasty, vile things about a race of people, is that violence in, in the way that you view violence? Yes. Okay. I, I was, I was going to try to show, I was thinking I was recording it for a little bit. It's like, okay, no, I'll say it. I, I, I think it is violence. And obviously, you know, you, you establish a difference. There's a difference between calling people names and death threats. Obviously, there's a reason why they investigate death threats. That's another conversation. But in the case of, you know, calling people names, I think even calling them mean names downplays the severity of, of some of these things because there's still a lot of hate speech flowing around on Twitter and on other platforms that I think should definitely be addressed in some way. I've certainly always found it interesting in the, in the United States legal system and in political debate philosophy, there are things that we would consider to be illegal because they would be death threats if you rendered them to an individual. But if you print it out on a pamphlet and change that threat from an individual to a group and hand out that pamphlet from everyone in town saying, we're going to put you and all of your family into concentration camps, you're no longer making death threats. You're just running a political campaign. And I think I've always thought that's been a really interesting, you know, bright line of delineation of what the United States has decided to make, what type of speech is, you know, formal or informal. Just coming up and someone and telling them, I am planning on killing you in the future when I get the opportunity is a crime. When you say, I am planning on organizing this country and political apparatus into a system that will eradicate your entire people off the face of the planet, you're conducting a campaign. There is a degree of immediacy here we are talking about, but we're still left fundamentally considering the same message of communication. I am waiting on my chance to murder you. The conditionalities are different. One requires that I need a bureaucratic institution to enable it. The other requirement means that I just need a simple handgun. Now, those are both death threats, but we interact with them very differently. There's always something I enjoy. I like pointing out to my speech 111 students of how the nature of political and real violence gets different, quite literally, just based on the number. If you start threatening enough people vaguely enough, it stops being a threat on someone's life and it starts being political campaigning. But part of that issue is because you, you have to have a legal bright line. You have to have a legal standard 
to prosecute. So for example, if you assault someone on, on online, and for those who don't know the difference, assault is when you threaten. Like if I say, go to this person's house and burn it down, that's assault. If I go and do that to the person, that's battery. So that, that is the legal distinction between the two. That can be reported to the FBI. Like hate speech has a process for being dealt with. So I guess my question is, if it's removed from all these platforms, it doesn't stop these people from being racist, hateful individuals who would likely go ahead and do this in real life if they had the opportunity. So now we just don't know who those people are. Like AK can very clearly know this is a white nationalist person and, and, and engage with them or choose not to if he doesn't feel safe doing so. But online, because he doesn't believe that those words are the same as violence and shouldn't be equated as such, then he has the ability to engage with this person. Whereas when Twitter just removes the hate speech, because it is vile, we can agree that it's vile, then you lose the discourse. So I like to explain this point is that ideas can never, in my mind, ever be regulated or criminalized. Ideas can't. Like, that's a hill that I'll die on. You cannot criminalize thoughts. And to me, people's words, right, of thinking about things, again, not direct actions, right? Again, if I say I think that all people from um, Sierra Leone, my father's country, are poopy heads and they're bums and they'll never amount to anything, right? If that's my personal feeling, right, you can't regulate that. And if, if you think that, well, I don't like when you say that, so I'm just not going to give you a platform. If you think that that's actually making me go away, you're wrong because what it's actually doing is making me say, well, you know what? I can't even talk about this anymore. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm just going to go and talk to, I guess, my own echo chamber. And that's where to me, like this is a conversation that we don't like to have. When you push people into, um, you know, out of the light and into the darkness and you allow them to fester, they don't just die, right? They continue to have these beliefs and they're actually more dangerous because they're not able to have conversations. And, and I'm, I'm going to give you just a quick um, analogy, and you might disagree with it, but I understand organized crime. Why do I understand organized crime? Because of how I grew up. I grew up with people that sold drugs. And I'm not talking about like a, a dude that grows a pot plant in his backyard. I'm saying people that are moving major weight, which have to use a criminal network to move that weight. And I understand it. And so people always, like, I don't think they understand that Large criminal organizations exist because they're underground, right? If they were out front, if they were in the light, they could be regulated, then they would do less terrible things because people would know about it and they could challenge it. But this is what happens. Every, every type of aspect, whether we're talking about speech, ideas, beliefs, crime, when it is pushed down, it does not disappear. It gets stronger. And most, it, it, honestly, in my opinion, it gets stronger. And, th and that's like, the same thing, it's applied across all of these, these broad subjects. So that's my biggest issue is that if you truly want to stop this type of speech, then getting rid of it actually makes it stronger. It's just, you find dark web, like you, you find your little communities. And if, if your argument is, well, well, I don't see it, so it doesn't feel like it's there. That's naive because it's there, it exists and it will come to the top in some way, shape or form. And that's my Second aspect, number one, I just think that trying to criminalize ideas and thoughts is terrible because, you know, we've all seen Minority Report. <laughs> That's where you go. Uh, and then secondly, I think that it actually makes people more vile when you push them down because they're not going to die. They will exist and they will find a community to thrive in. It's just no one knows about it. You, you can actually even add to that point that it almost makes them feel justified because they're like, well, now I'm being oppressed. I'm being suppressed Therefore, you know, 
must be onto something. And, you know, the, it really seems that like even if they're conspiratorial or the hatred, like whatever that we're trying to suppress here, that disinformation, you're giving them a justification. So even if you disagree with this, even if you disagree with what AK said, I think the consequence you're going to have to reckon with is that you, you give these people, maybe they don't have a platform to stand on, but they can feel justified in their beliefs. Aren't they saying that they're silenced anyways? Like, aren't, there, aren't they out there saying that they're canceled anyways? Oh, yeah. But when you, when you have all of these people who are clearly politically being removed from Twitter, then you, you've given them a justification there, too. Like, I'll give yeah. you an... Uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're being out there being racist and you get banned from Twitter and you're like, oh, they banned me because I was being racist, like, good. At least that's my thought. <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah, you're right. That is a perfect justification. And you should feel, I guess, a victim maybe because you were racist. Congratulations. Like, that's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's not my job. I guess, and, and and to to you know to bring it back to you know, countering like good speech with like bad speech, like it is it's not my job to like, go out on Twitter and like reason with these people. Like it's no. not like I will. I think in some cases it's not. I mean, it's not worth it to me. To me, it's not worth it. To to what AK said about you know hiding it, I think it's different to compare drugs and crime to hate speech because when when you know you don't combat bad drugs with good drugs and, and the way that you're, you're, you're talking about like, you know, hate speech versus good speech. And also when it comes down to hiding things, like there is, you know, there is academic evidence that shows that hiding, like, you know, deplatforming people is effective. I already said it. And, you know, it's, it's effective because it hides hate speech and it prevents it from becoming normalized. It prevents it from becoming mainstream, which has happened and, you know, continues to happen. If you give these people the platform, they will grow. So what you do is just push it down. And I so don't what do you, Well, I mean, both because me and Marcel is right, both qualitative and quantitative research on social media platforms has proved that um, toxicity, vileness, anger, and otherwise negative emotions are uh, ne- are go down when negative um, and violent and hateful content creators were are used were used. So, like in a particular example took and collected a body of several hundred thousand tweets before Mio, Mio uh, Yiannopoulos was banned and then looked at the tweets um, in the same period of time over for about the same number of tweets and the months then uh, after the ban. And there was a notable difference in the civility and the kindness and the overall lowered hostility of Twitter's atmosphere after the removal of Milo Yiannopoulos. We can also use Milo and Richard Spencer to form a really front and up, uh, up in your face, you know, proto white, you know, Mio being this proto crypto white nationalist, Richard Spencer being, you know, a full blown out Nazi that we deplatformed them. We kicked them off Patreon. We had uh, PayPal stopped processing their transaction and they're now on like some social media platform that like still allows them to be there complaining about how they're struggling to make do like deplatforming not only has been shown to statistically reduce overall toxicity in online platforms but it has very effectively destroyed two of what used to be the alt-right's most prominent talking heads so it is very effective at combating radicalization and the general population the research is out there to prove that so here, here's the here's the thing that i hear what you're saying from from just a, a data point of is there less or more hate speech on a platform if you ban someone, uh, of course there's going to be less, right? Like, that's clear. My question is, is the level of violence that actually exists still the same? And the answer is that yes, because they, they did not die, right? 
they still exist. They still have platforms that they're on. They, it's not like you put them in prison, right? Like if, if we're having a conversation about how do you, to what ends, I guess, let me say that first, to what ends do you care about getting rid of, of hate speech? You're saying that it lowers the temperature on these, on these social media sites. And that's what matters to you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking at a different perspective. I'm saying, what is it actually doing to society? Are we going to have less hateful ideas or beliefs or are we going to have more? Because let's, let's go back to the beginning. What's the point of not wanting to have hate speech is to actually stop violence from occurring, right? Like physical violence. And, and we can have a discussion about whether or not words are violence. But would you agree that physical violence is worse than emotional violence? I personally would. I, I think that if, if someone actually comes and like shoots me, kills me, you know, that, that's, that's an end all be all. Someone makes me feel like I'm really, really a terrible person. And I have a hard time keeping a job or something like that, right? Like it actually impacts my life emotionally. Again, if I had to make a decision, alive and and suffering with depression or dead, dead, there's no coming back from, you're just gone forever, right? There's no coming back. You're suffering with depression, you can find ways to move forward and learn to cope with your depression. So if we're causing, you know, saying that this is a delineation between what the impact of violence is. So then again, if the point of removing this type of speech is because you want to have less violence, but you're actually not producing quote, like actual literal less violence in society, then you might feel good that you're not platforming hateful people, but are you actually having less literal violence? And the statistics don't bear out too well. We've had a, an increased trend, right, of hate crimes. Like I, I just did this whole aspect, like deep dive, looking into like hate, hate crimes, like physical crimes that are actually happening. And even though, you know, we've done this great thing of deplatforming all these people, hate crimes have been going up, but they don't have a platform. So again, if we're saying, why do we want to get rid of the speech? Like, is it because you want to feel better or is it because you actually want to do better? I would argue it's because you want to do better. And when, when my pushback is by having the speech and bringing it to the light, you do have a chance to change people's minds. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, gen, like a genuine believer in humanity. I think that people that have very hateful ideologies and beliefs, it's because they're not being challenged enough, like honest to God. They're in their little bubbles. They have these crazy things. But when they start engaging with people and it's brought to light, you have a chance to change people. Maybe call me an optimist. But those points, I just want to kind of lay out there and, and get you guys' thoughts on those things. I would say the important thing in the, what I think I would also say Marcel and I are trying to also prevent is the need for people to be changed in the first place. You're not born a white nationalist. You're not born some ethnic supremacist. You're not born a hateful person. You're not born into being this bad person. You are conditioned, trained, educated, and raised to be this way. And we're, there is an, an attempt to push and pull the levers on the discourse, uh, the discursive world around us and how the limits and boundaries of our rhetoric, because we often find of when we look at the fringe cases and edge cases of what it's acceptable to say in public closely correlates to, you know, what are the crimes that gets committed? I mean, that's why you, you know, kind of point out, it like walks right up to that balance of like this, you know, verbal, emotional crime, then crossing over in, in like into physical crime. But we see where the discourse is become especially toxic and violence. We can identify that as a possible point of where violence may, you know, occur from. So, 
The grander question is, how do we modify the structure and systems of communication to prevent and to better redress not having to convert someone back away from white supremacy, but prevent them from becoming a white supremacist to begin with? And one of the ways that that happens is every opportunity for someone to be taught white supremacy in the in the public you know sphere in the public form, when it's reduced, that's better. Because as much as is as, as keeping these white supremacists around as a someone to argue with and someone we can teach, we're forgetting that while we're arguing with this one person who, let's be real here, may or may not really believe the things they're saying, but are looking to recruit people either into some financial Ponzi scheme type of just scam or into some type of like extremist terrorist organization you know, which is why the alt-right represents the largest domestic threat for the United States since 2019 till now. It's even been longer than that for a few years, depending on how you define alt-right. So the better question is, is not necessarily that we're tr- trying to save the individual white nationalist tweeter. We're trying to save the 13 and 14-year-old kids who encounter those messages and get pulled into those ideologies. And we want to stop that from happening in the first place, rather than having to focus on arguing them down from that ledge anyways. Like, let's just not let them get there. The interesting thing about what you just said is that the belief that having a a large platform is, is converting younger people. I just, you know, if I, if I saw data, I would say I'd be interested in it, but my experience is that most people that have these beliefs, it comes from home and it comes from like individual interactions with people. And if you look for it, like a lot of these kids, these, these white nationalists, these, you know, white supremacist kids, there are internet sites that exist. There's, there is a dark web where you can connect. And so I understand that you're saying that by having a, a larger uh, public forum, that there's more opportunities for recruitment. I just don't know if that's actually true because again, most of the people that I've, cause I don't, I don't care about talking to a white supremacist. I, I was an insurance agent for seven years and I insured a handful of, uh, of, of outlaws in a motorcycle club that did not allow people of color in their club, but they were my clients. Okay. And I would have conversations with these people because again, like <laughs> it's, it's crazy to say this, but, if you're not concerned about changing the attitudes and beliefs of people that have uh, opinions that you don't like, and you would say, well, those people are lost, they're forgotten. That's a scary place to go down because once you go down that path, um, this is going to be hyperbolic, but uh, what do you do with people that you feel are broken in society that can no longer function in a society? You remove them from society, sometimes physically by ending their life, or you you, you ostracize them and push them out. I don't like doing that to human beings. I think that's a terrible practice. I think that people are savable. Um, but the second thing that you said that kind of caught my ear is when you're, when you're talking about threats of violence, right? And you say that the alt-right has, has done these things. I, I've looked into the, the data as well about the alt-right and their impacts. The alt-left, I want to call that a thing. Uh, it's just radical ideology that believes that our society is so far gone that you have to take action into your hand. That happens on the left and on the right, 100%. There are plenty of people on the left, the, the Antifa types, that do believe that violence is the answer to combat the terrible things of society. Just like there's people on the alt-right that believe that our country is so far gone that violence is the only way to do things. I think that that is a terrible place. So in the same way that I think that having a free speech space is important to combat bad speech with good speech, 
it's just as detrimental on the far left because when Antifa is getting kicked off of Twitter, because they are, right? Like I can show that Antifa gets kicked off of Twitter too. That's a dangerous thing again in my mind because it pushes people down and lets them radicalize. But I'll, I'll just wanted to push back on that aspect of like, if you don't expose people to things, I'm telling you that from, from what, what, what my understanding is, is that most of these attitudes don't come from online. They come from the person's already personal family. That means that they're going to exist, which then if they're not platform on a platform, then there's actually no chance to push back. And, and I think that that's a negative. So let's, let's talk about the way that Twitter has been either kicking people off, downgrading their content, Twitter removed the sitting president of the United States because they said that he had called for insurrection. And I disagree with that. If you actually listen to what he said in his speech and you actually look at the tweets, wasn't exactly the case. But let's say for a moment I give you, he actually called for that. And they said that he supports dangerous ideas. He supported the idea of storming the Capitol. Let's look at who Twitter has left on their platform. You have leader of Iran who openly engages in war with surrounding countries. You have Putin who has now invaded a whole nother country, a whole nother sovereign nation. You have Hamas, which is classified as a terrorist group and calls for the mass extermination of another group of people. You have the Chinese Communist Party who is openly engaging in not just the concentration camp placement of Chinese Uyghur Muslims, but is also exterminating them. That has not gotten them deplatformed. So Twitter, my point here, and this goes back to AK's point earlier, Twitter is not consistent in where they choose to apply the removing of people, the deplatforming of people, the downgrading of people, the censoring of people. And to me, that mechanism is what becomes one of the biggest problems. All you're telling me here is that Hamas is better at following Twitter guidelines than the president of the United States. But no, I don't think that that's true. I think that Twitter is removing people inconsistently. I think Twitter's using your all's definition of violence when they're doing this, though. They're evaluating of what is a political campaign of death threat, of when is it okay to hand out, you know, I'm going to, you know, it's Holocaust 2.0 and start handing out your flyers. You know, you're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to threaten with someone with death because we place that value, that criterion, that bright line on the immediacy of the danger. Twitter's making that same calculations. They don't feel threatened by the leader of Iran. They don't remove his account. They'll feel threatened by Donald Trump. They don't. Rem they remove his account. They don't feel threatened by Putin. They don't remove his account. They don't feel threatened by China. They don't remove any of. But the their Chinese standard was this accounts. person's words are affiliated with this bad action, this violent action, including right. the overthrow of a government. Yeah. And Putin has tried to overthrow another government, but he is not removed from Twitter. How is that? But they don't receive they, they the immediacy of I mean, that may, that I think beyond that, Marcelo, even if he had or had not like tweeted about it, there is no immediacy of threat to Twitter as they view as the people making these decisions, whatever executives were involved in the decision to pull, you know, ban the president's accounts, this boardroom decision. They made that same immediacy, this, you know, evaluation that our court systems make when evaluating violence. And they said, and that is Ural's framework of violence, of we accept and deny certain forms of violence based on how immediately we feel the threat is. And so when they felt immediately threatened by Donald Trump, 
They took action on it because they don't view violence as violence. They, they view violence as violence with a threat of immediacy. So when they don't feel the threat from the violent words being posted online, they don't take action. And that's the fundamental problem with perceiving violence solely contained to the immediacy and not projecting it to into the future of the possible fallout of what the words can do. When they saw what Donald Trump's you know, words had the possible fallout of doing and they became afraid of it, immediacy felt immediate action took. When they see Vladimir Putin threatening Ukraine, they go, oh, we're the United States and Russia's military is now globally considered a joke and not a threat to us. So we don't have to do anything about it because it's not a threat. There's no actual danger. They're using Ural's systematic way of evaluating violence and its necessary levels of response to make these decisions. Your own definitions of violence are a part of the reason of why Twitter is behaving in a way you all don't like. Yeah, so I'll, I, don't, I don't think it has anything to do with the escalation of what violence is. I think it has everything to do with political power. I think that Twitter, because the United States president right? And the impact of what the United States has happened is more detrimental to Twitter than what happens in Ukraine or Russia and, and Iran and, and all of these other places in, in, in China. That's not important to Twitter, but it is important what happens mm -hmm. in the United States. So mm -hmm. I think that was a political decision. I know that their guidelines say it was because it was a, a call to violence or action, but I think that that completely misses the point. The power that Twitter has is a political capital. That's what they have. That's what Twitter is. Um, it allows people that have these voices to be able to influence um, individuals' positions on politics 100%. And I think that that's what the reality is that most people that are right of center have understood for a long time, is that if you don't do the thing that is politically um, in step with the left um, to a certain point, then you're not going to have a place. And that's why I said at the beginning that it's for people on the right, it's basically like a really trolly place where there's people that are like, I don't even care. Um, you know, I'm just going to be out here just, just completely trolling. And then the people play within the, the, the rules, right? They say, well, here's what, here's what Twitter will clearly do if you are right of center, right? So if, if I do that thing, if I like do an Alex Jones type of thing or, uh, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos or Donald Trump type of thing, like they're going to straight up ban me. So I'm just going to do like super uh, trolley type of stuff. Right. And that's what it's turned into. But to your point, Josh, I don't think it has anything to do with violence. I think it has everything to do with political power and violent, uh, an actual call for literal violence against an individual versus this conversation that you've been having, which I am curious. You mentioned um, political speech as like genocide and you've said it now like three times what do you mean can you like tell me what you mean you keep on kind of referencing that political pamphlets can mean like genocide or to, uh, to round people up for future action I'm not well, sure what you were talking about but yeah well, so, so I mean yeah I mean before Hitler took power you know, he wrote and published the Mein Kampf the Mein Kampf already laid out what the final solution was from his point of view was the purification of the Aryan bloodline so it was never uh, forced, you know, there, there was uh, no doubt of foreshadowing or wondered or uh, wondering of what Hitler was planning on doing. He talked about it in campaign rallies and at speeches he gave, like, no German was caught off guard when they opened the concentration camps and the light of long knives happened. He told them what he was going to do and he did it. But that's what I'm saying, that, like, you can, 
you know, go around and like print off Nazi party flyers that have been like, hey, we're going to do this again and go hand them out. And you're allowed to. And that's what the Nazis did in Germany when they took over the first time. They ran in democratic elections. They lost the first two times. Then Hitler was democratically elected. But they campaigned. They made flyers. They handed you know things out. They put up signs. They went and door to door knocked and recruited people into the Nazi Party. Got the electoral votes they needed. Took power and you know became the Third Reich. So that's I, what I'm saying. I understand that. I'm saying the way that you've said it a few times. It made me curious if you were alluding to something that that you've seen recently happen in the United States. Because yeah, I yeah. understand 100 what you're saying there. But I mean, yeah. there's like identity Europa. Like who then they've fallen out of a lot of favor since twenty like eighteen era as well with a lot of the other like white nationalist groups that were prominent in the Charlotte um who you know basically all had you know Charlottesville blow up in their face. But Identity Europa came to my undergraduate campus uh during February, you know, during Black History Month. They had their logo, which I won't describe what the logo is, and then they had their uh the the call phrase of identity europa they didn't invent it but they chose it um which is it's okay to be white so they had identity europa at the big bold at the front uh, in the middle was their logo and then at the bottom was it's okay to be white and they went and, and they went and put one of those posters on every single black history month poster on campus now they are an explicit uh i don't think they call themselves white nationalists anymore they may use the term ethno-nationalist Although that may, that may be too much Richard Spencer for them because they didn't always get along with Richard Spencer in the National Socialist Movement. But so like, like, yeah, I mean, I have actually like seen it in my life play out of like where a white nationalist group came to my campus and intentionally targeted black advertisement and black messaging and then put white nationalist, you know, call phrases on, on it. I mean, yeah, like and then in 2017, also when I was at, uh, you know, Middle Tennessee State, they were going to try to have a, Char- a Charlottesville 2.0. It was going to start in Shelby's County and then was going to come to my town um, of Murfreesboro, where we then founded the organization Murfreesboro Loves to put together a community response, um, an effort to what we knew was, you know, coming in of but essentially the same alt-right crew that just killed someone in Charlottesville like three months before, you know, now it was, you know, the end of September, you know, right at the start of October and they were coming to Murfreesboro, you know, just after their August Charlottesville rally. Then it was about three months after that protest that Identity Europa came through. Um, well, no, it, had, it was in October, so it had been all the way into that February. So it was that time in that February that then Identity Europa returned to campus and they were a part of the people who originally were planning on and they sent a guy in a mask and a hoodie in the dead of night to come in and bait litter with his propaganda on campus. But he was, you know, was in a mask and covered his face. And so none of the security cameras were able to do anything about it because the guy came out like two o'clock in the morning and posted the flyers up all over campus. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen calls for like white nationalist groups put out more than once. So let's assume for a moment that Twitter whether or not they they deal with harassment, bullying, white nationalism and stuff effectively, Biden's task force for disinformation is designed to stop what they will determine to be disinformation. And the problem that I'm seeing is that that's not going to encompass the issue that we've spent most of this segment talking about, hate speech, white nationalism. I'm going to start by saying one of the biggest problems I have with this task force is that it's being led by Nina Jankowitz, and she was one of the people who pushed so hard saying that the Hunter Biden laptop story was complete disinformation, Russian disinformation. So when the leader of this new task force can't appropriately define or identify what is disinformation, then why are we going to allow the government to be the one policing what is said, what is shared, or even like AK was saying, people's thoughts? 
Because we already do. What do you mean? <laughs> the K through 12 system with approved curriculum and history books. Marcelo, yeah, FCC, come on now. The FCC, the FCC with all of those rules already relating on, you know, they have strict guidelines on what can and cannot be said. Like, again, and I can't believe we're back to another episode of me defending a private company, Twitter, and also a person <laughs> I don't like, Biden. <laughs> but here we are. And no love lost for Biden, okay? You should be happy that he's creating this disinformation as central because when the Democrats lose in 2024, it'll be all yours. So then you'll you'll get the chance to to reframe this however you want. I think this and and the issue with there's so much to unpack here. The Hunter Biden laptop story that I also think it's not you know I think it's BS. Um, I think that the idea behind the the office is fine. I mean we already have offices inside of the government that do this. I also don't really appreciate you taking the framing of the Ministry of Truth and just putting it there. Um, it's, They've it's said that their uh, express goal is to regulate what information people can view. That is an explicit callback to the 1984 Ministry of Truth that polices what information people can and cannot access. Basically, their goal with this task force is to prevent dangerous information, disinformation from getting out so that people can't access it because it's going to be dangerous information that people shouldn't have access to is effectively what they were saying. They they want to be able to determine what is and is not true, and they want to be able to restrict information that they have labeled as disinformation. And it bothers me sincerely that the appointee to lead this task force has no idea what is and is not disinformation. Or even broader question, why should the government be determining and censoring information? Why Why, why would we give them that power? Because they already do. I know what you said. So that, when, like, when you when you say when you when you say that they already do, do you mean from like um, as the, this won't make yeah. any difference? Yeah. So like just, like you can't go look up what you can't go get the anarchist you know um, cookbook. You can't go get the anarchist cookbook if you start talking too radical and you start uni uniting the working class people across breaking lines like Fred Hampton do. The FBI will just straight up have you killed. The CIA can give out this you know the CIA top journalist award like you know. They already do. They so, already so lie about. I mean, they already lie about the edu like the history books. They already lie about the education through the education system. They already lie about what Thanksgiving is. So, like, like what's so going to change? Your 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 argument that you're trying to express is that there already is a, a department of misinformation. It's just it's not called the department of misinformation. That there are powers that be that suppress information already. So for you, it's more or less like a nothing burger. It's just like it already happens type of issue. Is that what you're saying? Why worry about suppressing information when you can just create truth in the first place? It's Michel Foucault's principal point of the positive uh, nature of power, that it's not just about repressing information, but creating social truth through the institution of power, the social truth of the American dream or American exceptionalism. These things aren't just true as a, as in carbon 12 and carbon 13 radiometric dating is true that's hard science true but the truth of the american dream and american exceptionalism is a truth created by the power structures of american imperialism and the american ideology but they so aren't there's no true there's no truth in the same power, way is what you're saying well no i'm saying power creates truth that the power of the american hegemony can create these narratives of of, you know, American exceptionalism, but it, you can't go out and test for American exceptionalism. I can go out and test for the presence of water. I can go out and test for the presence of carbon, or I can go out and test for the presence of different 
polymers and different molecules, and I can perform scientific analysis and observe the universe outside of my, my consciousness. I cannot go out and test for American exceptionalism, but the productive power of truth from a hegemonic, do the dominant power can create that to where even if it's not true in the same way of saying that carbon for the most part has 12 to 13 you know, in atomic weight, like that's a different level. That's a different type of truth than American exceptionalism or the American dream that people will call true. Like even if you believe in American exceptionalism and American, the American dream, the still that's a different level of truth than the hard science of gravity, of evolution, of, you know, of, you know, physics. So we say truth, but we use are using at times different definitions of it. The truth of history is a hell of a question, depending on who you ask. But carbon thirteen is always going to be carbon thirteen. So let me. That's always going to be true. Thermodynamics is always going to be true. American exceptionalism may not always be true. So I, the reason I asked the question of you know that your argument is that it really didn't matter is because I think it's important to to have definitions laid out so to me there's a difference between truth and fact maybe it's a semantic difference but facts uh tend to be empirical like they they like i was born on june 11th 1984 at you know 11:36 because someone looked at the watch and they said this is the time this guy was born that that's that can't be changed if i say i am the strongest man alive right? You can say that that's my truth because I haven't actually tested whether or not any other human, like I haven't went to every human in existence and said, I can lift more weights than you or whatever, right? But I can still have the title of the world's strongest man if mm -hmm. someone proclaims it. So I understand that like that is not a fact. That is, that is a, a truth that people generally uh, believe. When we talk about disinformation though, when we talk about this, whatever it's going to be called, right? The disinformation, whatever. Their idea is that certain facts and then presentation of beliefs called truth can actually lead to a, uh, a less secure country, right? That it's a national security issue. Because when I read the actual press release of explaining why this is being created, it's because they believe the powers that be that it is against our American interest, that it's actually a national security risk if we allow Russian bots and you know uh, Chinese influence, because those are the two countries that they mentioned that are pushing out this disinformation. And that's what the premise is, is that we want to identify that these things are happening, then we're gonna put this out. I think that trying to claim that this is truth or this is not truth is, is an argument that you will always lose because facts are facts and then there's truth. And truth is about a perception of a thing that people generally accept to be true. But the problem is, even if you have the Ministry of Misinformation or whatever you want to call them, right? Um, people are still going to be like, I don't believe that. So to me, my, my thing has always been uh, freedom of the press should have been, and, and you know, what it is now I think is completely different is that you try and provide information, right? And you provide opinion, and then you allow people to determine what it is that they want to believe because that's how it's always worked anyways. I could read a thousand articles, right, that are peer reviewed and still come away and say, I don't care what these things say. This is what I believe because 
That is a, a right that we have as humans is we can believe whatever we want to. I can believe that the, you know, earth is made out of cottage cheese if I dig hard enough. And you can't change my mind if that's what I really believe. So I just, I just wanted to throw out that piece that when you're talking about truth and facts, I understand what you're saying, but I think that it's insignificant because you can try as much as you want. I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe, you know? I would say you, you, you're, you're kind of with me on there, but not quite. So consider the delineation between truth and fact you gave me. You gave me the example of a fact of being the time you were born. But the problem is the time system is arbitrary. We made up the clock, and the clock is actually wrong a little bit every year. So we have to have a leap day every four years because the clock's rotation around the system of Earth is imperfect. Um, we don't have, there's no great way to solve a 365 or 366-day year reasonably um, the rotation of the earth. So the clock system is arbitrary. We could have gone with a 50 hour day. We could have gone with a 10 hour day, but we just ran it up with a 12 hour day, a 24 hour day. And we decided that's what it was. So when we say I was born at, you know, at 11, you know, whatever, like that in itself, we're already producing this. While we're saying this is a fact, we're producing a truth here because 1157 does not exist. The universe is just a bunch of molecular and chemical reactions going on, hurtling towards the inevitable heat, death, or vacuum decay of the universe. When all chemical reactions stops, every star has either gone supernova collapse and there's no more heat being generated and all life dies and entropy has hit its fullness. So there is no fact of 11. We describe a period of time and make a clock, but we made up that clock. Because what I'm kind of even trying to get at is we talk about material things and we say they're facts, but we never actually fully engage with the materiality of all of it because we only ever do so through our language and the production of truth. We say it's a, you know, even when we're talking about the nature of the universe and we say it's a fact and we say, you know, the laws of thermodynamics must be obeyed in entropy and the, and the universe will always go, you know, progress towards a state of higher entropy. Entropy is our concept and a cluster of words we use to define it and give it meaning. But what's actually going on is not entropy. Entropy is just what we've described. So even the fact of entropy is just our description of entropy. So we're, we never fully are interacting with the material in the realms of where we can say that language isn't coming in and producing truth when we really think we are engaging in fact. And that's really one of the fun points I always find about ideology is you can particularly tell and define an ideology on the basis of what it asks its believers to accept as the facts of the ideology and then gives a belief system to go along that uh, are true because of the facts of the ideology. And we're still left wondering then, how do we examine the idea of a fact even being constituted, being created? Because we talk about social like facts and history, but like you could hand me a $20 bill and say, for a fact, this is valued at $20. Well, until tomorrow, and then it's worth like, you know, $19 and a half dollars because inflation's up and, you know, doing its thing. But we, the, the mutually agreed upon value of that $20 and the fact of that $20 is only real insofar that the collective humanity agrees to assign it that factual value of $20. But it's not real. 
It's a socially constructed fact of the value of $20. Okay, but I, I don't think Biden's task force is going after the subjective aspects of the language and how there might be human limitations. What his task force is going to target is, say, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop is real. The Hunter Biden laptop has incriminating evidence. The Hunter Biden laptop has been submitted into evidence before the congressional hearing. Those are mm -hmm. facts. That is truth. And yet we have the leader of this task force having said at the time, this is Russian disinformation. This is this Just is propaganda. Ago. Yeah, even three more recent ago. than that. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Three weeks ago. She still so, said so that whole I'm hard to believe. Yeah. The the whole tangent that we went on explaining that there's there's truth and subjective, I think detracts from the main point here that I don't think that the Ministry of Truth, the disinformation task force, is going to better serve the U.S. people by labeling something as disinformation. Say, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop story. They say this is Russia planted this to prevent Biden from winning. So we downgrade it. We shove it down there. It was true. We know it's true now. Whether or not people are reporting on it is irrelevant. It is true and factual that this thing exists. And yet we have someone saying, nope, that's we're going to shove that down. Doesn't exist. That's what bothers me about this task force is that they're getting to decide not what exists or what doesn't, but what people know about. They get to label things. And all of the what you were talking about, Josh, for the labeling and the language, that's important because if people can't access it, if they don't if they don't have an ability to hear about these things and decide for themselves, then you have the government deciding what is and is not truth. And to me, that's that's problematic. Yeah, but they're already doing it. This is just, this, I mean, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Like, but you, <laughs> this is, this is like, you, you are acting like this is some like grandiose revolutionary thing that's going to fundamentally reformat America. And I'm telling you, this is one of 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 programs that the government's running, already done and been running since its inception. And that every single other world government is running. There's a propaganda arm of every single government. There is, yeah. Journalism's earnest and honest integrity reporting when it journalism first started you know and took off as a major industry it was to it was yellow journalism that was the first time there was actually mass professionally organized journalism and it wasn't like individually owned small like pamphlet printers that we saw during like the revolutionary periods but like when mass media first like really really became a thing it was it was yellow journalism and it was to sell the united states imperialism to make some people a buck and go conquer some islands like so my my issue listen my my issue is that i agree on on a fundamental level that governments already do this like yes 100% but i think that it is a precedence that is being set saying okay we we know that behind the scenes we're doing all these things but we're going to come up with a specific department that is going to be on paper this is you know you don't have to deep dive you don't have to look through and follow the money trail like this is 100% this. I think that that is a precedence that is significant, that will matter. But I understand what you're saying that like, there's so many things that happen that we don't know about that are, you know, uh, already happening. They're just under the radar. But I think that there is a difference, right? Between acknowledging this is something we're doing and we're moving forward with and accepting that these things might've already been happening on some level. But when you don't have like a lot of things, I, I have this conversation with people when it comes to conspiracy theories is that the government and, and all power apparatus and, and structures do a bunch of things that nobody knows about. 
Like that's just a, a truth that exists, like using that fact, that, that word truth. Like the government operates at a level that average people don't know about. Do some people know about it? Clearly, because if you're doing something, someone has to have known that you're doing this thing, especially if you're doing so in an official capacity, but you can obfuscate and you can do all these different things. But once you go to a point where you're like, here's exactly what we're doing. We're out in the front. You know, we're going to slap a title on it. We're going to have a budget for it that's approved. I think that that is a step to normalize using the conversation we talked about earlier, normalize a, a belief system that the government should be out front in charge of handling truth and disinformation. And that to me is the issue that I see with this is that it's no longer like hushed tones and behind closed doors or, you know, a guy that wrote a book about something is like, no, 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 this is what the government should be doing. And we're creating an office for it. All right. Well, we will go to break and we'll be right back with our hot takes. All right. We're going to, we're trying a new format. So we're going to put our, uh, our announcement and plugs here. Uh, so Josh, why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about the memberships that we got and how they can join us behind the scenes. Yeah. So if you are interested in supporting our show beyond just the like share and all of the fun social media buttons that you need to smash like and do all the things with you can support us by becoming a becoming a membership gets you access to the behind the scenes content which is sometimes a little bit before the show if i can never actually show up on time <laughs> and then the conversations we have after the show where sometimes us and the guests we have on the show will say, sit and talk you know 15, 20 minutes, sometimes more. Sometimes Ryan and I were one time talking until like 10 o'clock in the evening because yes. we recorded it. Like started the, like started the recording at like 7 at the night, ended the recording at like 8.30, and then for some reason still there until 10. Like you don't know how long it's going to be. We don't either. You can only find out by becoming a member um, and supporting the channel that way. It would mean a great a lot. Um, it would mean a lot to us. It means a lot to us. That, um, Angela support us, supports us right now through this. Massive shout-outs to her and what she's doing to help support us because if you believe that there needs to be more balanced discourse that represents people on all sides of it and to have civil and respectful discourse, then a great way to express that would be by supporting our show and it would mean a lot to us. And this is actually the first day Angela's missed because she's got a big exam. So good luck on your exam. Angela, you're going to kill it. She's in law school. So she's she graduates in May. She's got to take the bar. She's got a lot of stress. But uh, yeah, uh, Josh raises a great point. You got to oh, wow. like, look at, look at those. you got to subscribe, you got to hit notifications, I know. So like, subscribe to this channel, That the more you engage with this, the more likely YouTube is to recommend to other people. So if you like these conversations, if you love our new guests, we've, we've had Danielle, we've got AK, we've got more coming up. Like and subscribe, and uh, also you should follow us on our Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Yeah, Josh, laugh at me. <laughs> these are new. I just I, added no, these I little it. graphics. Okay, so this is a great segue. AK, I want you to plug your show. I want you to tell our listeners when they head over to your channels, what can they expect, and where can they find you? Yeah, so if you go and, and look, uh, I tell most people go to our our link tree. So we got a link tree. It's link tree forward slash BRBD, Black Republican, Black Democrat. You're going to be able to connect with all of our socials. That's going to connect you to our Facebook. It's going to connect you to our TikTok page. And what you're going to see is kind of conversation like this, where you have opposing viewpoints. Myself, I'm the Black Republican on the show. And uh, my co-host is the Black Democrat. And we talk about uh, different political stories, but we also interview candidates running for office at every level. We just had on a candidate for Hennepin County attorney, and we talked about her view of 
what to do in regards to prosecuting crime in Hennepin County, which obviously encompasses Minneapolis. We have candidates running for governor. We've had every gu- uh, gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, except Mike Murphy. So that's what you're going to hear is we're going to engage in conversation with elected officials um, on not just people running for office, but also political beliefs and structures. That's where you're going to be able to listen to that. And we try and do it in as much of a respect way, but sometimes things go off the rails. <laughs> hey, you, you get that here between us. Spe- really, it's between me and Josh. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Josh and I, I I'm think we just go charged. we just go back to the debate days and we just go hard. Uh, it's evolved over time, though. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to link that uh, on. This will be linked on our, our YouTube channel. That your, your stuff will be linked in the podcast. So if you want to direct access to their link tree and all their socials, just look below us here. So... Um, yeah, that, <laughs> that's what we'll do. Um, so let's, let's actually go into our hot takes now. And, uh, you're listening to the central hub for political discourse. All right, Josh, give us your hot takes. All right. Uh, my hot take number one is I'm pretty convinced that Elon Musk is going to cl- cause the collapse of Twitter. Like it's just going to get so bad that the employees aren't going to want to work there and the content moderation thing is going to be turned over to some supreme ai that elon kind of gets a stiffy when he thinks about because he's so proud of it um and that's going to be your new content moderators rather than actual humans because elon's talked about that about firing a lot of the people who do the band overviews who do the appeals and automizing more of the content moderation policy through artificial intelligence and through these you know robots um, that's bad for everyone. That's bad for the people who are getting banned and wrongfully and having to file an appeal. That means your ban was determined by a robot. And then, then a robot is going to read your appeal and then probably come to the determination of whether or not it's worth doing. And then you'll have to probably appeal that robot to finally talk to an actual human being to correct the mistake the robots made because Elon Musk can totally roll out new future features. That is why Teslas have the self-driving feature that he promised five years ago. That is why the Tesla truck is on the market because Elon Musk is a good businessman and good at moving products and actually delivering goods. Oh, wait a minute. Um, So I don't think Twitter can get much worse in terms of a political environment. I do think Elon Musk can come in and scrape the corpse of Twitter and haul off some money. I actually think he's going to lose a lot of money um, at the, in the long run of this. Um, this is just the def- definition of LOL. It does not matter. I literally can't run out of money because it's like an inf- like self-growing proportion as all billion you know amounts of money are. Billionaires aren't your friends. I subscribe to the, the New York Times for this exact reason because you cannot trust the Washington Post because Bezos owns them and it's notable in their journalism. Go read any Washington Post article about Amazon and tell me you cannot tell you cannot uh, feel Bezos's influence un, under those articles. Um, and if you can't, you're you're burying your head in the sand a little bit. Twitter will become like that same way. Uh, it will become a more of a cryptocurrency NFT scam hellhole as Elon Musk is also on the hype train of those. So all of those terrible NFT and crypto integrations you've been seeing to Twitter, they're going to get a lot worse. The content moderation is going to get more automated and a lot worse. And um, I think as a service, it's going to become a worse user experience because you have a child of a, of a slaver uh, who thinks he knows things about business because he bought out Tesla with his PayPal money. Um, Elon Musk is just an overhyped person. Uh, I think in terms of when we're looking at the idea of uh, Biden's like set administration of they're already doing this now. Like why call it the ministry of truth when you can just call it the department of education. 
Um, these are just how governments write narratives. They create the textbooks. Your child gets the textbook approved by the governor that was written by the scholars who got their degrees from the approved universities and were peer-reviewed peer by the publishers who, were, who, you guessed it, running in the same elite circles of very few select people deciding what information is and isn't allowed presented. Like a government in Canada tried to write this uh, textbook of where it described uh, the indigenous people uh, peacefully and negotiatively left their home, their homes and residence and lands, and gave it with uh, for trade uh, uh, value to the Canadians. No, the British did the same thing as they did down here in America, and they took it by violence and force. But this government issued textbook was going to rewrite the past and say that it was this peaceful thing. American government kind of already does that. We can at least say the word here still celebrate Thanksgiving for some weird reason. But we already have like these systems of institution of, of the government creating truth. And so to me, this is just really no different. I, I know, AK, you made the point about how it, made it being explicit. However, there used to be the House of Un-American Activities, and we all consider that terrible. I don't think it's going to be too greatly different than anything like that could be. However, I will disagree with uh, Marcelo, and I appreciate the Ministry of Truth reference. George Orwell is one of my favorite communist authors out there. He is an anarcho-syndicalist or an anarcho-communist. He fought with the anarcho-communists in Spain and in the Spanish Revolution against the fascio-Frankists. Hey, you can also read his book Beyond 1984. Um, it's a book that came out in 1938. It's called A Homage to Catalonia. It's one part narrativized, one part diary of uh, George Orwell's personal diary as he fought with with the anarchist troops against the fascists and the Stalinists in um, Spain during the Spanish Civil War. It also recounts the fall of Barcelona after when the anarchists and other leftists had taken hold of Barcelona and defended it against the, the fascists who were being aided by Nazi Germany. The Stalinists, the authoritarian communists, teamed up with fascists, the nationalists, and the Stalinists all teamed up to ransack Barcelona and started rounding up anarchists and executing them throughout the country of Spain. So George Orwell, one of my favorite communist authors, wrote a great critique of Stalinism and uh, neoliberalism government, uh, Stalinism in 1984, and Animal Farm is his more broader critique of neoliberal. But again, I always like to plug the very suppressed historical fact when we talk about writing the truth and the fact, the fact that George Orwell himself was a, was a communist and was critiquing and suggesting forms of communism is one of the few things that gets repressed a lot about him and is a very unspoken truth about the history and philosophical lineage of the 1984 book. Okay, so my, my big issue with what Josh just said about the uh, <laughs> about we already have government doublespeak and we already have government issues, so this one should just exist. I think that that's a terrible reason for that, but I would also differentiate between what a board of education, because it is the board of education, decides is included or not included in its curriculum, is a hell of a lot different than the government coming in and saying this cannot be out there. When you go to school, you might not learn about these things in school, but that doesn't mean the information doesn't exist. Even when you have a book banned in an education system, it still exists. This is a whole new level. So don't let that be confused or conflated because we restrict and limit what is included in a curriculum for a multitude of reasons. A lot of times that's because you have to be very selective in what is included because we don't have time to include everything. That's not the same as having this disinformation task force specifically to upgrade, downgrade, censor information fully funded as a government propaganda wing. So to me, that this, this whole ministry of truth that Biden is trying to push through is a huge issue. Um, going to Twitter, 
I'm cautiously optimistic with Elon's new management for he's not a conservative. He's not a Republican, but he is a free speech absolutist. And as long as he follows through on that, again, I'll believe it when I see it. But the way that he's been talking about and where I think he's going to take this will be an improvement, not just because Twitter's become a cesspool and it can only get better, but because you're you're seeing all of these people having a meltdown over Elon Musk buying Twitter why? why? Why are these, these people are awfully upset that they won't be able to censor people for people who are saying that they weren't censoring people like that. That just seems very contradictory to me. Also, you're seeing, uh, Josh, you brought up a good point about uh, the Washington Post being owned by Jeff Bezos. This is, again, the double standard that the media and everyone on the left has been holding. No one said a dang thing when Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. And yet everyone is so concerned about a billionaire who is not even a Republican, not even a conservative, purchasing Twitter and allowing more free speech. So I think that really says all you need to know about that. So much to say on so little time, but I wanted <laughs> to thank AK for being here. It's been great talking to you. I will say, I guess, to to finish, and I will I will leave the Twitter stuff behind. You know, I hate Twitter. I will keep using it because I get paid for it, whatever. Um, and I, I agree with Josh. I don't think it's going to get how much worse can it get? And I'm jinxing it on purpose. How much worse can it get? On the other side, my only thought on the task force, knowing very little about it, is that I think it's another political play by Biden because the metrics are coming up. And he knows he's falling badly among most of them, the moderates. And the moderates really care about misinformation for some reason. So he's going to like put this together. It's not, nothing's going to happen. And I swear, if like from what I've been reading, if I hear the phrase uh, dangerous president one more time, I will probably just like close my laptop down for the day. So my hot take is, uh, I think, Elon's move to buy Twitter and, you know, basically see whether or not he can fix this. I'm optimistic. I think that he's talked a lot about wanting to go to um, a membership uh, model where let's say, you know, you, you pay $5 a month and, um, you know, let's say you want to become a verified user uh, that you actually have to, again, be a member. I think that will be a, a good thing to have more people that are verified so there's less bots and, and less just general trollery. It's still going to happen, but at least you can have more more honest conversation. In regards to how much of a free speech absolutist Elon Musk will be, that, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I think that having a level of censorship to, you know, if you want to say for the public good, makes sense in certain regards when it comes to like blood and gore, right? Like, you don't want to just be scrolling through Twitter and all of a sudden you see like some like, you know, 14 year old girl's head getting chopped off and you had like no warning that this was going to be something coming across your feed. But we'll see. I'm, we'll see. I mean, uh, 4chan, 8chan had these issues, right? Uh, if, if you know anything about the, uh, the life of these uh, websites, that there comes a level where it's like, okay, are you truly an absolutist? And if you are, I want to see what kind of things you're going to put in to allow people to say like, okay, I don't want to see this type of content because that's going to be the key part. Now, when it comes to the task force, my big issue, as I said before, is that when you codify and say, the government is going to officially say, these are things that are okay to say, and these are things that are not okay to say. I do think that it sets up a precedence. Um, we did have, yes, a... a uh, basically a war propaganda, right? The, the Ministry of War or whatever it was, or Department of War. And we had, you know, propagandists uh, that were in that. But it's a different time, right? Like if we are in World War III, I think that in a, in a real sense, in a reality sense, sometimes your values have to change and shift. Um, I'm not saying that they always should, but, you know, 
ex- extreme examples call for extreme measures at times, but that's not what we're in right now. We are not in World War Three. Knock on wood, I have a wooden table over here that we don't have to go into World War Three, And, you know, that's, that's a whole other aspect. But I, I just think that when the government says these are Nazi words and you have the full backing of the government to say we're going to basically make it illegal, right, uh, in some way, shape or form for you to have certain information, if that's the route that it ends up taking, that is dangerous. It's one thing for, again, the Department of Education to say this is our approved books or, you know, for Florida to have like this just happened, right, where they, they approved only like 32 of like the 80 some textbooks that were submitted. But those textbooks still exist, you know, much to what your point was, Ryan, you can go and still find those textbooks and parents can buy them and they can teach their kids at home. But if, if it was considered on the, the banned list, um, would those books even exist or would, would you be penalized if, if you tried to sell any of these, this information? And, and that, that, I don't know what the answer to that question is going to be. So I just, I just think as a general practice, our government should try and allow people to make decisions about their lives. And the more that the government allows people to make decisions about their own lives, I think the better off we are. And whether that's about who you want to associate with, free speech, education, I think that that is a a better positive for our society is when you let individuals make choices for themselves. So that's my hot take, Mike. Well, AK, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great conversation. Lots of great insights. Uh, check out Black Republican, Black Democrat. We're going to link that. Remember, you can find Between the Liars on Spotify, Apple, Twitch, YouTube, Google Podcasts. Follow our social medias to stay updated. Like our stuff. Share our stuff. Get us to the top of those charts. And if you enjoy this show, we'd really appreciate it if you give us a five-star review and uh, share us with your friends. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere Between the Liars. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.